Hello and welcome to the Points of Brew podcast. It's episode 41 and I'm your host, Stephen Carter. I'm not joined by her in this episode, as this one was recorded remotely via Zoom. I am, however, joined by award-winning beer writer and author Pete Brown. I've long admired Pete's work, reading some of his past books including Man Walks Into a Pub, Craft, An Argument and Hops and Glory. Pete joined me to have a chat about his new book, Clubland. This follows on nicely from A Man Walks Into a Pub, as he looks at the important role working men's clubs played in our beer drinking history. He also explains how the upper classes tried to change and manipulate the working classes, but ultimately failed. It's an interesting listen, and after meeting Pete recently, it was great to chat more and help him promote his new book. I'll post details about where you can buy the book in the outro, but here I am with Pete now. Pete, welcome to the Point to Brew podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. How are you doing this morning? You okay? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. No, you're very welcome, and uh, I'm, I'm very sort of privileged to to have you on board as a uh, a writer that I uh, have read many of your books, which we'll we'll discuss as we come thank on you. to an an award winning author, nonetheless, as well as uh, won several awards for your previous work. But we uh, we did meet recently as part of your book launch, which we're going to discuss today, Clubland, your new book that's just released. But you did a a mini uh, a mini talk with uh, Ian Clayton, yeah, my neck of the woods in Pontefract, didn't you? Wasn't that wonderful? Wasn't that a lovely afternoon? Yeah, a great way to spend an afternoon. Yeah, so it was about two or three weeks ago now, wasn't it? So uh, it so was. Yeah, yeah. I've had, I've admired Ian's writing for such a long time. Uh, he manages to pull off this uh, this brilliant trick of being very literary but staying absolutely true to his Yorkshire roots and his Yorkshire dialect and vernacular. Mm. Um, and that's something I admire a, a great deal. So it was brilliant to do an event with him, and he's yeah. got such great stories about working men's clubs yeah well this is it and and it sort of ties in nicely to obviously your your book that you, you've, you've released now and obviously your previous one a sort of a, a man walks into a pub it's that's almost sort of ties in nicely doesn't it it's almost it a really does. sort of snapshot of of england's history and heritage of pub and and club scene but yeah he's um he's a great you know i i only met him by chance um coming into the shop where i work he had some books in our shop previously before i was oh, there right. and came to pick him up and then i happened to chat to him and blah 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 and off the back of that he's, he's he said he'll do a show in person at some point as well hopefully um a pub that he he knows that he's been to for many many years like you say he's got many stories to tell as certainly does as uh as we'll come on to but uh and but such Pete, a wonderful storyteller as well yeah you know, just that real knack you don't see much of it anymore but just in 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 person, just doing that wonderful kind of narrative technique that he's got. It's just fantastic. Yeah, well, that's it. And I think he mentioned while we uh, while we were there that he, he's, he'd obviously done a, a few um, episodes and, and shows for the BBC in the past, and they were going to try and send him to, um, to an enunciation school or to have lessons yeah. on enunciation and things. And it's like, no, I'm not doing that because he's, he is a very broad Yorkshire man, but that is... Again, there's. I, I love I've been a Yorkshireman, obviously. I love that, but obviously, you were a, yeah. born, born and raised in Yorkshire as well, weren't you? So, absolutely. And I did a the, the week after I was up. Uh, my wife runs a literary festival. I live in North London now, and uh, we did the Stoke Newton Literary Festival. And there was uh, we got a printed program and about a hundred words on each event. And so I was doing an event on on my book, obviously, kind of talking about uh, working class bringing background and stuff and someone complained someone wrote to my wife the festival organizer and said uh, the copy for the clubland event is far too colloquial and it's like that's the whole fucking point of the book <laughs> you know is to kind of champion like what you know to champion colloquialism mm. it's like you know it's it's a valid form of expression there's mm. no need for kind of rp or whatever 
yeah yeah no it's i think it's that whole point of that you never you're never going to quite please everybody are you but it's no. uh you'll, you'll never do that but but pete before we sort of get into the nitty-gritty and the sort of the the true sort of needy wading in of the the book that we're here to promote your new book clubland do you want to sort of start by giving myself and listeners uh, a brief background of where you came yeah. from previously how you got into beer writing and how that's changed over the course of time since you first released your uh, your first book absolutely it's uh it's been a strange journey uh i, I grew up in barnsley uh i i did my a levels and was the first person in my family to get away to university and um at first i thought i was going to go back to barnsley after university and then i didn't and uh came down to london instead and when i was growing up in the in the late 80s and early 90s um the funniest things on television were, were beer adverts um it kind of stopped around the late 90s because of new reg- regulations and stuff um but there was a gap between say uh the young ones in the early 80s and sort of the comedy boom of of the of the 90s where we're watching kind of three or four TV channels and a new beer ad would, would be, as I said, the funniest thing on TV, we'd go to school in the morning and say, Oh, did you see it? Did you see the new cowling ad? Mm. And, uh, and so they were just great. These little 30 second kind of encapsulated gags where the punch, if it was done really well, the, the name of the beer would be the punchline of the gag. Yeah. So you have things like Heineken refreshes the parts of the beers cannot reach. Uh, I bet he drinks cowling black label, uh, things like that. And they were so well written. Um, and you know, there's a worry that oh well, beer adverts on TV are going to make people going to make kids want to drink beer, and they didn't. They made me want to do something far worse. They made me want to work in advertising. <laughs> and so, so I got down to London uh, and got a job in advertising. And after a few years, I found myself being the strategic planner on uh, Stella Artois and Heineken. Uh, okay. So I, uh, I, I'm infamous as the person who. Uh, made the decision to drop Heineken refreshes the parts of the beers cannot reach um, in the same week that that phrase entered the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations as the most successful advertising strapline in history. Amazing. <laughs> so, so, so that was that, so that was great. Uh, working on Stella was great, but the thing about it was um, that working on beer, uh, you know, looking at it from a kind of social and cultural perspective. Uh, I was fascinated by the passion around beer that people had. And, and it's changed a bit now. But back then it was incredibly tribal. You know, you, you were a Carling drinker or yeah. you were a Foster's drinker or you were a Stella drinker. Mm. And that's how you self-identified. And it's like, well, no, I drink this one. All the others are terrible. And, and I thought there's a degree of tribalism and passion there that I hadn't seen in anything else apart from maybe the football team you support. Mm. Um, and now, now people kind of drink across brands in a lot more kind of easy way. But I, I couldn't find anything that told me about the social and cultural history of beer. So there was a lot of books coming out from camera, which are like 100 Fantastic Real Ales and all this kind of stuff. And none of them mentioned lager. And it's like, well, I'm not saying lager is better than real ale at all, but it is 60% of the beer that people, I mean, it's more than that now. But I was like, you can't just pretend it doesn't exist. If, you, if you're saying the best beers in the world and you don't include a single beer that's not a real ale, yeah. then you're kind of being a bit silly about it, really. And so I decided to write this book that didn't exist. And I and I had a very kind of spiky attitude towards the beer writing establishment, I suppose. <laughs> uh, and I slagged off camera, which no one had ever done before, um, yeah. and said, you know, they, they were absolutely right to, to preserve real ale. They've done a fantastic job. But they're so tied to the past. They're now 
preventing it from going forward mm. and and innovating. And I was and I started going to other countries and drinking Belgian beer and American beer. And you know, when I started drinking American beer, people were like, well, American beer is awful. It's the worst beer in the world. And I was one of the first people in this country to say, no, they've got this new thing called craft beer. Uh, and it's got loads of hops in it and all these incredible aromas and stuff. Uh, and so I was on the, the first wave of that, really. And uh, and yeah, it's all different now. Um, and I, but I was going to write one beer book about beer. And then I was going to write my great uh, novel, um, which still remains unwritten. But I've done 12 books now, which kind of feature beer, pubs, cider and related related things. <laughs> Cover all, all manner of different angles of beer writing, which I think I think you do sort of very well is that I've, I've read um, uh, the Hops and Glory book that you, you did mm. where you're sort of recreating the, the journey of IPA to India. I've got you, man walks into a pub on the go at the moment and I picked up the um, Miracle Brew whilst uh, mm. as the event. And then obviously I will have the... Um, uh, you knew about Clubland on the way when when payday rolls around, I'll have that. So I've yeah. got like a series of your books that are sort of stacked <laughs> up on the on the reading list, which I'm rapidly sort of my time's diminishing as the little one takes up more of my time to, of course, to read. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I think what you do very well is like you say, it's almost that that niche and that genre of you get the hundred best or a thousand one best or your best pubs or your best styles and best countries to go to da, 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 but you don't get the sort of almost like travel writing side of it almost. It's not travel mm. writing, but kind of that sort of almost genre of taking a snapshot of places and sort of putting in such a a lighthearted and witty manner that, do you know what I mean? That it sort of, in a lot of senses, would probably appeal to people more than just beyond beer, if you know what I mean. It's especially sort of <laughs> the, like, you know, it, uh, the, um, you know, the man walked into a pub one again, sort of looking at that snapshot into the historical side of our, our past yeah. and, and, and sort of association with beer. And, and I'm sure is the same with, with Clubland, which I'm sure... Um, sort of expands on that and I think mm. you know like you say that historically we've got this sort of tribal attitude towards beer and certainly from being around Yorkshire you know Tetley's with the sort of the the Huntsman logo you know you you, you know people were yeah. Tetley drinker and that pretty much was it and that would be it and, and nothing else and it, it's an odd relationship we had with beer that in many respects like I say it's been lost now because people drink beer more freely but do you think that sort of has changed? Uh, we're probably coming to this as content as part of club then. Do you think that changed because of the closure of the pubs and the working men's clubs and places like that? Do you think that sort of has diminished over time because we've lost these these places part I think of our partly, society? I think partly there's, there's a whole bunch of things that happened. But yeah, broadly, briefly, that's absolutely right. Mm. So so one thing is that um, brew, big breweries used to own most of the pubs that mm -hmm. sold their beer. Uh, so if you went into a a Tetley's pub back in the day, you would get Tetley's beer. If you went to John yeah. Smith's pub, you'd get John Smith's beer. Um, and obviously they got bought up by bigger corporations mm -hmm. and they became bigger and bigger. So it became Courage and then Courage got bought by uh, Heineken. And then, you know, so and most most of Britain's big brewers are now owned by foreign multinationals. There's, yeah. I, think the, I think the biggest British owned brewer is probably, probably Brewdog now, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but they... Um, but the beer orders in 1989 forced breweries to sell off their pubs. And what they did was they sold off the breweries instead and kept the pubs. Mm. And pubs became uh, independent big businesses that could now stock any beer they wanted. Okay. So that, that kind of helps destroy the tribalism because now you can, you can go to any pub, you don't know what beer you're going to get. Um, mm. It could, could be anybody's. So any, it's a good thing in a way that uh, any, any pub can buy any beer that it wants. Well, not, it's not quite true, but it's, it's much more true than it was. A bit more free, um, yeah. 
And then, then the other thing that uh, that happened was this big shift to drinking at home. So we now drink a lot more beer at home than we do outside. Mm. And so we you know, we buy that beer from supermarkets, and supermarkets have all the brands available in stock. And there was a big shift. So so that that shift to home drinking coincided with advertising regulations getting them a lot tighter. Mm. And so what brewers did was the the millions of pounds they used to spend on TV ads. And also, you know, we, we fragmented, we now got hundreds of channels. So you could put an ad in the middle of Coronation Street in the mid eighties and a quarter of the population of the country would see it. Yeah, There's no such thing as that anymore. Mm. You, you know, everyone's watching their own screen in their own time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so they they, changed, they took all those millions of pounds that spent on advertising and spent it on price discounting in supermarkets instead. Mm. So all that brand equity that used to exist, they basically destroyed it themselves. It's kind of an enormous act of self-harm because mm. they taught people to shop on price rather than on brand loyalty. Mm. And so now, incredibly, this is, it's incredible this is still true. Most supermarket shopping is still done by the woman in a in a relationship in a household mm. for the man yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still i don't understand how that's still happening in 2022 but um and she knows that he will drink any beer from a given set of beers and so she just looks for the one that's on price promotion mm. and so they're stripping all the value out of it a brand like carling makes about 1p profit per can uh, at the moment and supermarkets use beer as a loss leader to get people in mm. um and they if you notice that beer is always at the back of the store it's the furthest from the door yeah um that's so you've got to walk past everything else to get to the mm-hmm. beer that you've come for that's on the deal yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that's how it all works now beer is used as a loss leader to get you into the supermarket to, to buy some expensive salad or whatever mm. uh and, and then they put your beer in at the end and and the mainstream beer drinker will go right I'll drink Foster's, Carling, Carlsberg, whatever, which one's cheapest this week. And, and that's how it works. Yeah. So it's a bit sad, really. Yeah, well, and I think to a certain extent, I think we've seen that happen with craft beer, though, haven't we? Recently, we saw Tesco, mm. as the Sainsbury's, Morrison's all sort of up in their game with the, the, the craft beer offering. I think that that could be the, said the same, is that their pricing that they're putting there at sort of the three to four pound a can mark in some of their beers that would be five to six to seven pounds at an independent bottle. Yeah. I think they're sort of doing the same, is that, well... We'll, we'll probably pay the breweries what they what they due, but then, like say, if that means that they can then get the reciprocal back of, well, we know that X number of craft beer drinkers are going to say, oh, there's some new beers in Tesco, I'll go do my shopping there and pick those yeah. beers up. They're getting that money back, aren't they? And it's, it, you know, it's rightly or wrongly they do that, but it's just it's seeing that creep into, rather than from the big multinationals to almost our yeah. sort of real ale and craft beer world, haven't we now? We're sort of trying it's to It's a tricky it. one, isn't it? Because... The, the the commoditization of mainstream beer kind of left this gap for craft beer to move into. Mm. Um, and craft beer was like, well, there's margin here. You can make a profit by selling a can of this, whereas you can't make a profit by selling a can of carling. Mm. And so for a brief period, craft beer was this really attractive thing uh, where it was interesting to drinkers. It had that passion. It had the stories behind it that the big brands used to have. Um, and people could make money out of it by brewing it and selling it. But yeah, inevitably, it comes into the clutches of this this kind of vortex of yeah, let's mm. let's just sell it, pile it high and sell it cheap. Mm. And it's really difficult as a beer writer and as a beer drinker. There was a a point just before the pandemic where another beer writer was tweeting, uh, I can't remember which beer it was now, but it's tweeting. It's, like, it's absolutely disgraceful that these beers are in the supermarket for just one pound fifty a can. It's 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 putting independent 
uh, bottle shops out of business. Uh, it's destroying the, the value of craft beer itself. It's absolutely disgusting. And I'm on Twitter going, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's disgusting. It's terrible. Then I'm straight onto that supermarket's website to buy some. Because mm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I get yeah. this £1.50, fantastic. Mm. And, you know, writing doesn't make you an awful lot of money. And and I, I can't really afford to drink um, the beers I love at the prices they should be sold at. So I, yeah. I, I'm as guilty as anybody looking for the bargains. Yeah, I think everyone is. And no, but I don't think anyone can say sort of conscience free that they've never bought a beer from a supermarket or something, because especially with everything getting as expensive as it is, which you'd say that is our support is, best, you know, needed not now more than ever. But by the same token, everyone's feeling the pinch, just, you know, of everything, you know, fuel prices going up, gas prices going up, electric prices going up, rent prices, you know, everything it is getting more and more expensive. So it's everyone inevitably at some point is going to have to cut the cloth accordingly and find cheaper alternatives or try and get things for as, as cheap as possible. And that absolutely is not exempt from that, unfortunately. And I wrote this uh, in lockdown. I wrote this book on the definition of craft beer mm, Yes, because <laughs> it was yeah. like, it was like it was like a it's like a, a you know an ulcer in your mouth that you keep prodding with your tongue. Mm. It's painful, but you just keep doing it. Mm. Uh, and there's a thing in in the big notion of craft. There's a deep irony at the at the heart of you know, forget beer. The, the notion of craft itself um, is that ever since you got automation and industrialization, you can make goods really cheaply. You know, mm. you can you can buy a chair in a chair in IKEA for two hours labor on minimum wage. You know that's extraordinary, and it's 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 democracy, and it's freedom for people who. You know, and you can also go and buy a chair that's been made by a master craftsman for a thousand pounds, and functionally it's the same chair. Yeah, but there's just a lot of different, you know, associations with it. Mm. This one might be more comfortable. It might be more beautiful to look at. And the irony is that craft, the notion of craft, it puts power and autonomy back into the the producer, the creator. Uh, where they can take pride in what they're making. Uh, it has their stamp on it, their individuality. Um, but because you're giving the craftsperson that and, and you, they're hopefully getting paid a fair uh, sum for in, in, in return for their work, mm. there's always a much cheaper industrial alternative available. Yeah. And and so you get this irony whereby you know, there's, there's all the ethics and right on kind of uh, politics around craft, but it's only affluent people can afford it. Yeah. And, and that, that applies to craft beer, it applies to uh, craft glassware, bespoke furniture making, you name it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I have got a copy of that book as well. But I think you said in, in that book itself is that it's almost like you, you when you go to see a band that's small and only you know, know about it, and then you mm. complain they've sold out because they do big arena gigs. And it's like, well, what do you want craft to be? Do you want it to be this little thing yeah. that nobody knows about? Or you tell your friends about when it gets a bit bigger. It's it's the, like you say, it's the irony, isn't it, of... Yeah, the scene itself. No, we all have our own. We all have our own sort of threshold, I guess. Yes, it's exactly. That, that, that yeah. thing is. Oh yeah, well, I prefer the earlier stuff. Well, mm. and I, I for, for myself, you know, a lot of the biggest brewers in the country today, I knew them when they were starting out, and they were just mm. mates and stuff. And for me, there's this horrible thing where I'll be writing to a, to the founder of a brewery, going, "Oh, mate, can I just catch a, a couple of cases of beer for this event, and I'll give you a plug and do all that kind of stuff." Mm. And then there's a point where you write to them, and you get a you get a reply from the the marketing director or the PR department or even their or even their PR agency and you think oh yeah, they've, yeah. They've, they've gone there yeah, <laughs> they've, yeah. they've gone to the big place there <laughs> yeah that's uh yeah they've, they've uh, they're, they're no longer responding directly to emails mm. like you say they've got a, a PA or something to do it for them yeah they've, they've reached that level then but um but we'll we'll come on to um 
onto onto the book itself, Pete Clubland, which obviously is what we're here really to talk about. Obviously, mm. it's it's just just launched, and and hopefully the launch has gone uh, or has been successful since it launched a few days ago. Mm. Um, but tell us a bit about obviously what what the book is, which we've obviously briefly skirted around, but also the initial idea and how long this sort of book has been sort of rattling mm. around in your brain, and how long it's taken to get to from the idea and actually writing it to, to finishing it. What, what's the, the process? Yeah, been? So it's been, um, it's been a long journey. Um, it started off when I was researching man walks into a pub, my first book. And it, and it is very much a kind of companion piece to that book. Um, and it, it actually go, it goes back to the, to the 1872 licensing act, okay. <laughs> which, <laughs> uh, which is an unlikely thing to say. And, uh, Please don't, please don't switch off. I promise you this is going to be interesting. But um, it's, um, so th- this was a licensing act uh, where for the first time pubs had regulated closing hours. Uh, mm-hmm. They were mandated that they had to close between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m., uh, mm-hmm. which, which was outrageous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one had ever had restrictions like this before. And the thing about the act was that it exempted private members' clubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so private members' clubs, were subject to no regulation whatsoever, but public houses were. And private members clubs were posh clubs in Mayfair and St. James's, uh, patronized by politicians, judges, lawmakers, uh, military generals, that kind of thing. Mm. So I know this is really hard for us to to imagine in 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 2022, but it was like there was one law for the rich and one law for the poor, and the people in government could carry on partying with impunity, whereas the rest of us would have got uh, prosecuted if we'd tried to do that. Mm. It's, it's a weird situation that has no parallels in the modern day whatsoever. Not heard of that before at all. No, no. across <laughs> that. No. Um, and working men's clubs were ten years old by this point. And they said, uh, well, we're private members clubs. And, and the lawmakers were like, well, no, we didn't mean you. It's like, mm. well, no, I've read the act and it says private members clubs are exempt and we're private members clubs. And the lawmakers went, oh, shit. And, <laughs> and, and so this was, and I, as I was reading it, I, this was an example of working class people who at the time were being dismissed as thick, they were being dismissed as animals, they were being dismissed as degenerate. Mm. They outsmarted the, the leaders of the country and turn their own laws against them. Mm. And ever since then, you know, working men's clubs have enjoyed different licensing conditions than pubs. And the authorities tried again and again and again to close what they called a loophole. Mm. You know, funnily enough, gentlemen's clubs were not a loophole, but working Mm. men's clubs were. And it's like, well, why why is that then? You know, Uh, and so it's a massive example of kind of class bias and stuff. And as I read that, I just thought there's something in the working men's club movement. I remembered it as kind of, you know, lots of blokes in flat caps eating chicken in a basket and drinking mm. Stones Bitter and watching Bernard Manning on stage selling racist jokes. Yeah. And and which is kind of how a lot of people remember clubs. But it, this was a completely different version. This was like, no, this is an organization that is run by working men for working men and mm. it's doing different things. So 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 I started digging into it in a lot more detail. And after Man Walks Into a Pub, I pitched it to my publishers as an idea. I said, I really want to investigate the history of working men's clubs. I think there's a lot here. And the publishers came back and said, well, the thing about that is there's only old people in the North who want to read that, and old people in the North don't read, so no. And I, I must have pitched it about five or six times over the years as I, as I went from publisher to publisher. Mm. You know, each time you finish your book, you're effectively unemployed. You've got to kind of come up with a new idea and start all over again. Mm. Um, and every publisher in London who I approached rejected it on pretty much the same lines. Mm. Uh, and then during lockdown, HarperCollins set up uh, a northern branch 
uh, called Harper North, which is based in Manchester. Mm. And they approached me and said, we want to talk to writers from the north of the north, uh, not necessarily in the north still, which is uh, really funny, uh, but you know, about about think books that are particularly relevant to a northern audience. And I mm. said, well, I've got this. I've, <laughs> I've been working on draw. this for ages. I've <laughs> got this. And they went, this is the book we were designed to publish. This is This is absolutely what we're looking for. So in 2020, they gave it the green light. And I've been working on it fairly constantly since then. Mm. And it's it's I think that's the sort of the the misconception, isn't it, of of sort of beer writers like yourself that do it as a, as a full time employment, it's full time job is like you say that effectively once you've completed one piece of work, you need to work on your next one because yes, you yeah. get reciprocal sales back from that book, but you, you, that's going to slow down over time. So you need to keep constantly working on things. And I think that the perception is that well, he's a beer writer, so he drinks beer, he gets paid to do it, and da da da. Yeah. He's, he's got an easy life, which obviously it's clearly not the case because you might have these five no. ideas but you've been working i mean when was man walked into a pub release that was early 2003 yeah so yeah. you've had this idea kicking around for you know since then for nearly you know 15 20 odd years that i've been now it's only come yeah. to fruition it's not a you know it's not absolutely a, i've got this idea and somebody will say yeah we'll, we'll print that and we'll publish it it's they're always going to get kickbacks regardless of how good the idea is or you think the idea is clearly but my, my friend Stephen beaumont uh who's kind of like me in Canada uh, is a mm. uh, leading Canadian beer writer. Uh, and he once said on his social media, I don't get paid to drink beer. I get paid to write about the beer that I've drunk after I've mm. drunk it. And it's a really important distinction. Mm. You know, we, we get, we get paid to write in the morning when you're hungover mm. um, yeah, yeah. and you go to turn it in. <laughs> and I remember when I was doing three sheets to the wind, which is a travel based book, I've got these little Moleskine notebooks that I used and uh, I did a lot of travel with my mate Chris from Barnsley, and we'd be sitting in pubs in Barcelona or whatever, and he'd be like, "What you, you did a bloody notebook again? What you got that out for again?" And then I'd I, I published the book, and he read it, and he's like, "How did you remember that? How did you remember that bloke's name in that pub? How do you remember this little story? I'd forgotten all about that." I was like, "See the notebook that you kept yeah. taking the piss out of." <laughs> you know, all the time we were drinking, I was scribbling in that notebook, and then we got home and I transcribed those notes, write them up. And then sit with a big pile of notes and go right. What do I do with all this? And mm. and turn it into a book. And it's yeah. uh, and it, it, when when you're not established, you're doing that in your spare time because you're, you're still doing a day job as well. Mm. Well, that's it. And I suppose that's the other thing is that if you're going out to do that, is that almost in some respects you don't really get any free time because you're always no. switched on to even if it's research that might not end up in a book or something. You're always sort of got that sort of level of conscious consciousness that well i even need to make a mental note of it or a physical note of it and then exactly. it apart and weigh it up and its value on its merits of does it fit in does it not fit in and and it might just seem like oh pete's going having a pint or he's going to oh, i'm off to see these four five pubs or whatever it is but it's still it's it's still work, work. you know and, it is and i mean say, it's a very very pleasant version yeah, of work say, no, poor, I'm, not, I'm, not gonna, work. I'm not gonna say poor me because <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. it's it's fantastic to be doing that for a job instead of um some other jobs that I've done, mm. uh, even working working adverts for Bleach, I tell you, it's a lot better than that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's still work, and so your part of you is always on. You're abs you're absolutely right. Mm. It does but, mean that and claim beer back is uh, against tax though, so that's all right. You get you get something at least. But it's obviously it's, it's like you say it's the we said earlier it's obviously it's the the unknown and the uncertainty of I suppose the income isn't like say you you kind of your advertising world you know your salary and what you're getting and etc cetera, etc. Cetera, but to a certain extent, I suppose there's a bit of a, a grey area, isn't there? Unless you know you've got commissions coming in or writing coming in and things like that and it's and something I did want to sort of touch upon is that obviously between you publishing like um, Man Walks Into a Pub and Three Sheets to Wind etc that 
beer publicity has changed a lot in terms of its Absolutely. appeal on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, all that good stuff has sort of come out and people digest beer media and, and beer coverage in many, many different ways. So beer writing in many senses of the word in terms of physical publishing books, um, newspapers, blogs, um, things like that, as, as sort of you've seen the demand increased has it dropped has it stayed the same have you, have you is what what noticeable change have you seen that in terms of how has that impacted you in terms of this is a great book idea i'm gonna i'm gonna write a book yeah. about it i mean the, the, the good thing i i have to kind of swallow i have to kind of swallow my ego because around 2010 i was three books in uh i was kind of the most prominent beer blogger in the uk i, I think i was the second person to launch a beer blog in the uk mm. and if i walked into a craft beer bar chances were I'd get recognized. Mm. You know, it was like being a celebrity within the beer world. Yeah. And and that very rarely happens these days, partly because I've got older and there's a lot of younger people than me now doing it, and they're much more adept on social media than I am. Uh, and partly because the whole world is bigger. You know, when I used to get recognized in a beer bar, a craft beer bar, that, that would be a craft beer bar in South London that people would come from Brighton or Luton to go to because there was mm. nowhere else. Yeah. And now there are craft beer bars everywhere and it's a much bigger universe. And that's a, that's a good thing. I'm, I'm glad it's so much bigger and I'm a much smaller fish in a much, much, much bigger pond now. Mm. Um, I still am old fashioned in that I really, I value proper writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't, if you try to communicate about a beer, I see the value in taking a nice photograph and putting a bunch of hashtags under it. Um, but I don't see that as writing. I don't mm. see that as a creative. I mean, photography is creative. You know, if you're going to do something interesting with it, um, mm. uh, that's great. But I, for me, it's about, it's going back to what we're saying about Ian. For me, it's about telling stories. Yeah. And it's about, and I've got very little interest in trying to describe what a beer tastes like mm. because that varies from person to person anyway. Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, you can go on untapped or rate beer for that and and people take a great deal of pride in going oh yeah there's an orange note to this yes seville orange no seville orange pith yes mm. late harvest seville orange pith and it's like <laughs> okay it's a pissing contest and i'm yeah. i'm not interested in it and my palate is actually not that good it's, it's good it's trained mm. but i'm not one of those super taster people who can pick up really really subtle notes specific notes yeah and for me it's for me it's how does the beer make you feel uh, where did you mm. encounter it why is it there why are you drinking it like that why are you drinking it out of that size glass and not that size glass Mm. um what about the person who made it what what motivated them to do it and that's that's what i i'm more into yeah yeah no definitely and 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 i'm the same and much the same is that you know we enjoy beer and that's the main thing is that you know the politics and everything that goes on in the sort of the the beer world is that as long as the beer is good and you enjoy it that's like you say how it, how does it make you feel the the people that you're with the place that you're at you know the all these other sort of subsidiary things and almost the beer is the secondary yeah subject isn't yeah. it really like you say it's the other things that happen around the beer that that tell the story because like you say you in in many of your uh you know experiences and books that you wrote yeah you're having a beer but it's what happens around it where you're at the people like yeah. you say, the people that you're with and, and what happens there but is, is there anything in particular that you you've found writing clubland that either surprised you the most or you found the most interesting or the most significant is apart from obviously the, the law that changed the the, the shift in, in legislation. Is there anything else that you found? I mean, that was just the, the that, that was just the start of it. Um, so I, I had these two points. I had the law, the licensing law, which did clubs as different from pubs. And then I had my memories of clubs growing up and the, the kind of northern flat cap image that they had. Uh, and I thought, right, linking those two together, that's going to be a fairly straightforward thing. 
the first thing was that clubs have been utterly and completely ignored by any social historian. There's mm. there's just there's just no other there's no other book about them uh, like, like mine. There's a small self-published book which is kind of an oral history, uh, and that's it. Um, and so it was kind of a real kind of interesting research process. And I had to go back into uh, the history of Victorian music hall. Uh, and then I had to go back into kind of the history of the Industrial Revolution, why, why kind of large numbers of working class people ended up in living in slums mm. and, and what the what the leisure alternatives were for them. Uh, and there weren't any, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, so I found out a lot about uh, the politics of, of working class uh, experience and working class existence. Mm. Um, and also just how deeply the the effect of the impact of clubs runs. It touches everything. Um yeah. You know, so everything from light entertainment, where it, when I was growing up, pretty much anybody good on telly or in the charts had come up through clubs in one mm. way or another. Uh, and, you know, we had the old kind of the old fashioned comedians like people like uh, Les Dawson, Cannon and Ball, people like that, who you knew would come up through clubs. Mm. But then as I started researching it, uh, it, it's people like, well, bands like The Fall and The Jam started in clubs yeah. um, and played clubs. The Jam were hilarious because they were they were a covers band playing working men's clubs in in the in the southeast uh and then when they started that paid for them to get gigs in london and then when they started getting some credibility in the music press they had to stop doing the club gigs in case anyone found out and that spoiled their credibility yeah um whereas the fall in the north of england were just like celebrated the fact that they were a clubs band and mm. marquis e. smith was going once you've played working men's clubs you can play anywhere because the audience is so tough and so hostile mm. so there's a lot of individual stories as well tom jones starting his singing career in a tradiga working men's club uh people like marty kane who saw uh clubs as an escape from an awful life um and she became you know a, a, one of the best well-known tv stars of the late 70s and early 80s uh because if she hadn't done that she'd have probably died um mm. she was a circumstance that was so appalling and so there's just loads and loads of individual stories so much pretty much everything in the book to answer your question came as a massive yeah. surprise to me <laughs> that's what like you say when there's so much interesting information that is there to be found that hasn't been collated before or put together in a, a reference or not like you say almost a an encyclopedia of information that I suppose like you say there's always going to be something that you think I didn't know that or makes sense yeah. really when you think about it it's like you say that all these famous actors or comedians or bands or artists that they've all got to start somewhere and inevitably like you say in the north particularly it was the pubs and clubs do you know what i mean that we mm. you know that there obviously were just people that did the, the pub and club scene and that's what you know they, they'll just do pubs and clubs and that sort of thing and without that you know yeah. like, like you say tom jones it's ridiculous thing that tom jones started there you just think that you know perception is that oh you're a great singer he gets snapped up and he signed straight away but when you like you say it makes sense when you think about it more that these people needed somewhere to start yeah. and you know like you say if it was a what was defined as a, as a rough and ready sort of maybe dark and dingy working club up north then that that was their that was their proving ground wasn't yeah. it and without it they, I, they I, spoke to Les, I spoke to les dennis about it and he, he was talking about the the, the problems with uh, the issues with being a comedian in working men's clubs and mm. having to compete with you know you'd be halfway through your act and then a compo con goes it pies are here and, mm. and suddenly everyone's queuing for a pie while you're trying to tell you tell them a joke. Yeah, yeah. Um, being paid off, you know, if you weren't going down very well, it talks about clubs in the northeast where you walk on on a Sunday after Sunday afternoon, Sunday lunchtime slot, and there's just a sea of men reading the news of the world, 
and these newspapers all go down they take a look at you and then the newspapers just go back up in front of their faces again <laughs> and he's trying to do his act and then the curtains just start closing in front of him yeah, yeah. it's just like <laughs> come on bonnie lad don't 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 punish yourself Time's and, time. and, yeah. and, and it, it, it all sounds like a nightmare but then he says but when you when you nailed it when you did well you just felt it was the best feeling in the world because mm. you're like, I've dealt with all that. I've, I've, I've survived it. I've conquered it. Mm. Um, and and the, what, what I love about it, talking about that from the other side, no performer was bigger than the club. Um, mm. The club belonged to the members. It was their space. And it's like, you come here, you, you turn, you've come to entertain us, but you do it on our terms. Mm. And if we decide that it's bingo time, then you shut up and we do bingo. Then we, we, might, we might let you all back on afterwards. Mm. And even big acts had to kind of, it was such a great level. Of- yeah, yeah, it's, it's like you say, the, the, it was their personal space almost. Wasn't it? In a public environment, it was their, their mm. personal space, wasn't it? And it's like you say, you, you, come, you come and perform as, as we want you to and you, exactly. you speak, speak when spoken to. And if, exactly. Like you say, it's, it's, it's a weird sort of, set of rules and sort of unspoken rules unwritten rules isn't mm. it? do you know what i mean it, it's that it's just you you knew when when to speak and when not speak and who sat where and blah 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 and yeah oh who, yeah that's a big one mm. that whole thing you can't sit there that's jimmy's seat mm. oh where's where is jimmy well he hasn't been in for a couple of days but you still can't sit there because that's his yeah. seat it might come in you don't it might be it, it might come in. you don't know yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no i i i experienced that definitely um so coming to the North and South divide of things, obviously, like we said, the you said earlier, Pete, is that the sort of the the South and the the politicians are trying to sort of abolish and get rid of the sort of the, the safe space for us sort of Northerners and and working class riffraff. Um, yes. But did 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 you get to any sort of specifics of like sort of specific clubs of where that almost that North South divide started and finished, or was a sort of a cut off point you found as you sort of drifted further south or were there any sort of it was really interesting actually this is a big surprise and for both northerners and northerners and southerners i think it's a bit of an interesting thing but for the first 50 years of its existence the working men's club movement was entirely a southern thing okay um so it was it's begun in london in 1862 mm. um and it was a kind of a plaything for rich philanthropists and nobility that they almost kind of it was an it was an exercise in improving the working man Mm. Um, and say, so, oh yes, well we're 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 very interested in co- contributing some money so we can get these these ruffians uh, watching Shakespeare and listening to Mozart and whatever. Mm. Um, and and that was the project. You know, you know the film My Fair Lady. Yes. Uh, so it was a it was a bit like that, but with the with the whole male working class population of London, basically, mm. uh, we got we got to turn them into gentlemen, and, mm. and that, that was the idea. And uh, the working men went well we are here to be kind of learned to learn something and to be improved, but not in the way you want us to. Mm. Uh, and in the 1880s, um, as working men started to get some representation on the bodies that ran clubs, um, they took matters into their own hands. And it, and in the 1880s, it was the East end of London, uh, the radical clubs there that really started to create the, the identity of the working class working men's club movement. Mm. Um, and it's instead of having the speakers that the, that the wealthy people wanted them to have. They got their own speakers to come in and there were political speakers and, and things like that. So there was a massive working class movement in the East End of London. That's where it really started. Mm. Uh, and then after that, once they, once the, the, the kind of radical element went away and it kind of started becoming more about entertainment. And then in 1909, uh, they instituted this, so I should go back a bit. Um, the, the issue with the, kind of the, the, 
the middle classes was that they wanted to go and visit the clubs and see how well their experiment was doing, but yeah. they didn't want to go to the rough areas. Mm. You know, <laughs> they wanted to go to nice places. They, yeah, weren't, yeah. they weren't going to go to the slums because that was horrible. Um, and so it was only when the working working class took over that they went to the places they were needed. And then in 1909, they they put in this kind of federal branch structure, so that the, the clubs elected their own committees to run them. If you're on the committees, you then got, you, you could then stand for election to be a branch representative. And then from the branch representatives, you could you could be elected to run the national organisation. And as soon yeah. as that happened, and also by this point, the clubs were making enough money from beer that they didn't need the donations mm-hmm. from the rich people. As soon as that happened, the clubs grew everywhere, but that's the, the growth mm. absolutely exploded in the North. Because um, they had they had this organisation um, the central body mm. could help clubs get started, uh, and in the big industrial areas, they absolutely took off. Yeah. Uh, so the big places were Coventry, uh, South Yorkshire, and and West Yorkshire uh, around the coal fields, uh, and then in the northeast, uh, they're mm. still going stronger in the northeast than anywhere anywhere else. And I don't think there were any particular clubs in the north because it was just such a it was such a huge mm. thing, it was such a massive thing. Just hundreds and hundreds were opening every year. Uh, for, for a long time, and then after that, they became the culture of the, the, the culture of the working classes, yeah. basically. And and this is the key point: is that by this time, the rich patrons had effectively been kicked out, and as soon as they were no longer part of it, they were no longer interested. So there's quite a lot written mm. about working men's clubs in the late 19th century when they were involved. As soon as it was just working people involved, that's it. There's nothing written about them anymore. So it's like they go mm. back under the waves, and they're not really noticed. Uh, and so, you know, if you look up if you look up clubman in the in the yeah. Oxford English Dictionary, um, there is nothing yeah, about yeah. working men's clubs. A clubman is a member of uh, a club in Mayfair, a gentleman's club in Mayfair or St James's. You look up clubland on you look up clubland on Wikipedia, and it's uh, the gentleman's clubs in St James's and Mayfair, or it's kind of dance rave. There's no mention of the <laughs> Northern Working Men's Club circuit at all. It's just invisible. Yeah, well, it's like you say, one, once they've got no interest or vested interest, it's almost like they cut them off, cut ties, they, they don't exist anymore, and just delete them from, or try and delete them from existence, I suppose, don't they? It's just they've got nothing it. to do with it anymore. So, so I, was doing Amazon search, I was doing Amazon searches, and, you know, you could you could fill a library with all the books that you get on Amazon about gentlemen's clubs. Mm. Um, and there's, there's like I said, there's like one other book about working men's clubs. It's, it's, mm. it's crazy. Yeah, it is. It is really bizarre, and like you say, it is that sort of the the divide that that's always existed, I suppose, isn't it? That either sort of physical or you know metaphorical or you know just between working classes, it just it is the the divide's always been yeah. there. But it's, I think, I think you touched upon it with, with Ian quite um, quite nicely when when you did that talk, uh, the Robin Hood, is that as much as people think of these you know pubs and clubs and 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 working men's as sort of these sort of little hovels and dives is that mm. the irony is that a lot of these people were you know albeit working class but pretty well educated you know what i mean they would have the the newspapers out or they discuss the yes. you know the, the the politics or the government or whatever sort of was going on in the world at the time the irony is that these people were actually pretty switched on to what was going on in the world you know that they'd come back from a they really were. craft but they weren't stupid they weren't thick, uh, the, you know the I mean? thing that the, the thing that inspired one of the things that really inspired me and i i didn't find an example i didn't find a, a, a concrete example of this but i'm sure they exist is you imagine some imagine some miner or, or some steel worker or mill worker who's doing a monotonous drudge job for uh 
you know, 10 hours a day. They left school at 12 or 14, barely able to, to read or write. Mm. And then they go home, they get washed and changed. And then they go to the club where they're kind of the secretary of the committee or the treasurer of the club committee. And they're in charge of a bigger organisation than the work that they work for. You know, mm. it's like with a higher turnover and stuff. There's a lovely, lovely um, uh, episode of Panorama, a film that was made for Panorama in 1964 about Greaseborough Working Men's Club, mm. uh, which is on YouTube. I, I found it just Googling, and it's wonderful. So there's this old bloke in his 60s, and he's going, well, I went to see my favourite comedian in Sheffield, and there were only 12 people in the audience. So I thought, well, they should come to Greaseborough instead. And there's a, there's a posh uh, BBC uh, interviewer going, but why do you think they should come to Greensboro when when no one's really heard of the place? It's like, well, why shouldn't they come to Greensboro? And and it's I, I just love that. And then and then the, the the presenters like, yes, but these big acts are very expensive. Some of them cost more than a thousand pounds. Where's the money going to come from? Mm-hmm. And the bloke goes, we're taking eight hundred and twenty grand off at bar this year. And mm-hmm. it's just it's just like. It's so simple that the guy's trying to patronise this Yorkshire bloke. Mm. And the Yorkshire bloke's just like, well, no, I'm not taking no for an answer. Get me Shirley Bassey on phone. Get me Tom mm. Jones. And mm. and it's like, well, what, why not? Why not? And I, I just love that ambition. I just absolutely love that he was kind of an, an empresario. And this BBC guy just did not understand it. He mm. just, just couldn't figure it out. It's like, yeah, and, and, and the, the model eventually failed because it was like, um, right, we, we sell cheap beer. We sell a lot of it. That makes us a lot of money. Um, and so that means we book, book big acts. Mm. And so people drive here from miles around. We've got a massive car park. Uh, so everyone drives here, drinks loads of beer, watches mm. these famous acts, and we make loads of money. And then when the breathalyzer comes in, in 1969, I think it is, that's it. Mm. You know, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but no, suddenly, no. suddenly the economic model of those places doesn't work anymore. Yeah, but yeah. it for a while, wow, I mean, it was so fascinating. And if you didn't want to, so I'm rambling on, but if you, if you didn't want to do it that way, so many club men became politicians, councillors, magistrates, absolute serving on club committees. Uh, people people who were kind of decorators became scenery painters for, for the dramatic productions they were put on. Um, you, you could you could be a snooker player. Steve Davis started playing snooker in a working men's club mm. uh, and says that working men's clubs kept the game alive. Yeah. Uh, where it would have died otherwise. So you, you could, clubs allowed you to basically become anything and, and mm. do anything that you wanted to do. If you, if you did, if you wanted to stay working in your in your traditional job and going home and just having a pint or whatever, you could do that. The clubs let you do that. If you wanted something more, then clubs allowed you to do that as well. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like a, a selective level of participation, isn't it? You know, you want to, mm. like you say, you come and have a beer, you can come and have a beer, but if you want to, you know, expand your horizons or, you know, better yourself, like you say, from going and doing a monotonous job of even steel yards or in pit or wherever, and then to, to yeah. be part of a, you know, to be part of a, a bigger and wider reaching community almost of an organisation. Mm. It was, you know, a, a vast sort of de- sort of juxtaposition, really, from the job they were That's doing it. to what they were being involved in in the spare time. And I, I got it wrong when I was 18 and 19. So I, you know, I went, growing up in a, northern working class community you've got to be careful of tall poppy syndrome and you've got to be careful that you've got to avoid that thing of oh you think you're better than us do you mm. oh this is not good enough for you is it mm. and and i and i was a i was a bit arrogant and i was a bit like no it's not good enough for me actually i'm going to university i'm going to study management uh and, and i got it wrong but mm. and and i so i got kind of alienated and rejected by 
by by the place I grew up in. Uh, but clubs allowed you to get it right. Clubs allowed you to, to achieve things, but do it in a way that you weren't criticising the people around you. Mm. you. You weren't saying, well, you're wrong or you're inferior. You were saying, hey, lads, let's do this. Someone like Jane McDonald is, is a great example of that. You know, mm. she's a really talented singer and entertainer. And she sussed the thing with clubs. When she, when she played clubs, she was like, right, I need to make a connection with people. I need to show that I'm just one of them. You know, she's like she's like your mum's, she's like your sexy auntie or your mum's glamorous friend or something. <laughs> she's not like, oh, hey, I'm a big star. I'm, um, you know, I'm a diva. You, mm. Divas don't work in clubs. But, yeah. but that kind of, if you keep that common touch, like most of those great acts did, mm. then, you, then you're fine. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know if you sort of delved into the statistics of things like this now as part of your research, but in terms of the level of numbers of working men's clubs now, what 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 are we at now? Do you know sort of how many are left? Yeah, it's in, quite in... sad, actually. Uh, and part, part of the book is now it's a, it's a clarion call to try and... So yesterday, we're, we're talking on the 15th of June, yesterday the 14th was the 160th anniversary of the working men's club movement. Mm. And uh, not one single media outlet reported it. Um, partly because the working men's club movement uh, doesn't have a press office or a PR person mm. and didn't issue a press release going, hello, we're, we're 160 this years old. Us. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, they don't talk to anybody at all. They, they didn't talk to me. You know, mm. I'm writing a book about their history and they were totally not interested. Um, so we're down to about 1,200 working men's clubs now mm. uh, from a high of about 5,000. Right. And uh, a lot of them are closing. Uh, COVID's going to take a lot of them uh, eventually. People are not People are not kind of going back out. Uh, a lot of older people uh, mm. are just kind of, they've got used to staying in. Uh, there's a big trend in the northeast, so in the northwest, of building pubs in your backyard, in your garden shed and things like that, yeah. just staying there. Um, and what's happened is that people who go to clubs have aged. Um, a big part of the book is why was my generation, I, was, I turned 18 in 1986, and my generation never even gave a thought to joining working men's clubs. Uh, and why was that? But So I'm 53 now. Anybody my age or younger probably hasn't thought of a working men's club uh, or thought of going to one. Um, and there were a lot of reasons for that. The clubs were, by that point, they were uh, they were sexist. Um, you know, when I was 18, I wanted to go out on the pole. All my mates did. Single women weren't allowed to go to working men's clubs. So why would we go there? Yeah. <laughs> also, apart from when we wanted to pull, uh, platonically, we had mixed sex friendship groups you know I was I had as many female friends as male friends and why would I go to a club if they weren't allowed in that was just mm. crazy yeah. um so there were a lot of things happening like that um they, they had this image of being stuck in the 70s which is not entirely accurate but that was that was the image because that's when they were famous um and this aging group that now run them they they don't they don't have a clue about how to market them I'm sitting talking to these club committee men in the 70s and going, so you need to attract younger members. Yeah, yeah. How are you going to do that then? Oh, I don't know. Mm. And they're not on social media. Yeah. <laughs> you know, most clubs don't have a website. They don't have, they're not on Twitter. The, the, the national executive of the Club and Institute Union is 15 people. Not a single one of those people is on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, anything. I've mm. checked them all out. Yeah. And you might say, oh, well, that's a young person's thing. You know, a third of Facebook users are over 60. <laughs> And, and and the clubs are not on Facebook. Um, so, so they're not communicating with people. They're not getting new people in. And, and what I hope the book might do is there are clubs all across the country where young people are getting involved and putting on karaoke nights and setting up a website, setting up a social media account. 
And, and there are these incredible spaces in the middle of communities. Um, if you look at things like the closure of public libraries, the closure of youth clubs, the closure of community centres, drop-in centres, all that kind of thing, a club is a perfect space to, to do coffee mornings, scout troops, record fairs, um, you know, yoga classes, mother and baby classes. You know, they're, they're there with these rooms and they're just locked up and dark at the moment. Yeah. And they, they could really be these community spaces that, that we sorely need. They just mm. need to reach out and people need to know that they're there. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it goes beyond the, like we said earlier, it almost goes beyond the beer, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? Totally, it's does. totally does. Just having a, a decent lineup and selection on the bar. Like you say, most of them, you know, probably 99% of them had event spaces or, as, you know, a room for really room did. with a stage or what have you, and probably a lot of them still do. Do you know what I mean? And yes, my, my local club. It's um, it was built in the, the the current building was built in 1900, and it's got what what was then a billiards room, now a snooker room. It's got nine full size snooker tables. Mm. Uh, there's there's a young family living next door to us. Uh, kids are like 13 and 15, and when they found this, they, they lost their shit when they found <laughs> when they realised that that this snooker was there and that you know Saturday mornings members kids can go in and play on the snooker tables. You mm. can't get them out of there now. You mm. know they think it's the best place in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's just kind of knowing knowing that it's there really. Yeah, and and that's the whole point, isn't it? Like you say that <laughs> unless people know that they are they are there then they won't know and if they're not willing to move with the times want sort of a wanting to use a, a very washed out phrase that if they stay stuck in the past and unwilling to or unable to move along then they will sadly close yeah. the doors and and obviously like you say the things like the, the breathalyzer coming in we drink driving and and inevitably the smoking ban and things like that will all take and take yeah, a toll yeah. won't they and like you say when sort of old boys have been used to being able to sit and have a few fags and a couple of pints well, if I have to yeah. go outside, then, like you say, home drinking tied with that, then they'll just stay at home where they can just they, they do yeah. what they want, can't they? And it's, it is but, sad. You know, they, but like I do believe that clubs have got a lot to offer younger younger generations. Mm. Uh, yeah. I, I, and you're right, you know, in, in the 60s, when a lot of clubs were rebuilt, they were built with these state-of-the-art, um, you know, they're all a bit tatty now, but they were built with these concert halls, uh, mm. these, these different rooms, um, in order to accommodate women before women were allowed to have full rights um you know they'd have a separate woman's room or something they'd have a room where you had the bingo on my local club you know there's there'll be a kind of um swing jazz retro kind of swing hipster swing jazz thing happening in the main theater mm. uh blokes playing snooker in the snooker room um the england game on the telly in the main bar and bingo on up in the kind of second smaller concert room so there's, yeah, there's yeah. something for absolutely everybody mm. and you just got to know it's there yeah yeah and it's it's the right offering isn't it ultimately you know and, and you kind of don't know that demand of what to put on i suppose unless you you, you reach out to people because it's like say it's all right saying no, oh, we'll put this on we'll put that on but if it's not what people are interested in then it's not gonna gonna attract them yeah. out. i think that that's a big thing sort of post covid and and now ultimately we everything being more expensive is how do you encourage people to come out and spend money and that's the yeah, the sort of the the problem now, I suppose, isn't it? As much as and club clubs offer a cheaper pint than anybody else does, so you yeah. know it's a solution to that problem as well. Yeah, if yeah. people only knew about it. Yeah. Um, and it, but it's as simple as you know, I'll, I'll speak to someone and they'll go, "Oh, we don't know how to get new members in." I'll I'll be like, "Have you thought of putting a notice up outside saying new members welcome?" It's mm. like, "Oh no, we haven't thought of that." Mm. <laughs> it's just it's that basic. Yeah, yeah. Well, it can be that simple, can it? <laughs> just having a an air board or whatever outside. Yeah. Or just have an open day. You know, mm. get get the local paper to come down. Have an open day. Uh, so look, this is our concert room. It's available for private hire. Have your eighteen. When, when I was growing up, 
everybody's 18th birthday or 21st birthday party was held in a club function room. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You get some sandwiches in and sort of beige buffet and mm. cheap beer on the bar. It was fantastic. It's yeah. like th- those, those rooms are still there, you know, have mm. a private eye for this one. Uh, have your wedding reception here. Uh, or, you know, if you want to, if you want to kind of do band practice, you know, this place is usually locked up on a Tuesday afternoon to so come in there and use it for your band practice or whatever. There's mm. so many different ways that, and, and because uh, under austerity, you know, all these services are being cut from local communities in the north more than anywhere else. Mm. And club clubs are the solution to a lot of the um, I mean, you know, it's been nice if a government invested actual money doing something instead, but if they're not going to do that, then clubs are a, a great solution to a lot of problems communities face. Yeah, well, that's it. Like you say, when when like you say community centers and other places like that have, have shut down, it's the next sort of logical place for people to 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 gather, isn't it, really? And but when obviously from the, the cutting off of ties with regards to the, the clubs and, and working men's it's unlikely that the government probably will invest these sort of yeah. in infrastructure of these things isn't it and and, it, and it's sad like you say it's sad to to see that and uh, but that's that's just how the the, the cookie has unfortunately crumbled mm-hmm. and the government has chosen to abandon its um its roots and things isn't it really I suppose. Exactly, but yeah. it's um it is a shame it is a massive shame and i mean where i grew up myself in a sort of village on outskirts of leeds is that i know that they're there was a working men's club at the end of our state, which is now a, a snooker a snooker centre. It's still mm. like a small bar and whatever. It is still the same building in essence. But I have memories of going in there as a kid and going to kids' birthdays and went cricket wrong because my dad and my brother played cricket there. I played cricket there while it was still open and what have you. And it's just it, it's it's same. It's a big snooker snooker hall mm. now, but it, it was shut as a working men's club for ten or fifteen years or so. You know what I mean? And it was just abandoned and. I think the closest one would be sort of two villages on now. You know yeah, what I mean? So yeah. it is. And I, I think there might be one in where I'm in Pontefract now, I think, maybe. But again, you sort of, I, I haven't been, do you know what I mean? Like you say, it's almost it, my generation, especially where it doesn't even cross your mind to, to go to a working men's almost, does it? It's just no, not completely not detached from that. It's like you say, a club to me would be, a nightclub, do you know what I mean? Yeah, or, you know, exactly. Something else. Yeah. It's not a, a working men's club, so it's it's that sort but of. There are these lovely stories. So the Walthamstow Trades Club near me, uh, and, and that, that's a point. I mean, maybe some of them need to change their names now. From mm. there's a lot changing their names to trades club or social club or something like that mm. to, to get rid of the kind of no we no we do finally accept women now, um, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> at, at Walthamstow, this woman was looking for somewhere to put on a regular um, DJ night. And walked into the club because it was someone's party. She's like, I must have walked past this place a hundred times. I never knew this was here. Mm. This is a perfect space for my DJ night. And now they have kind of deep dub reggae nights there and things like that. They have sound systems coming in. Um, and and then, you know, so you'll have some kind of deep dub reggae night that will be interrupted halfway through because the 90-year-old bingo call will come out and do a few rounds of bingo. <laughs> and and then, then you go back to the heavy roots. And it's just like... That's perfect. That's perfect, you know. But it's just knowing those spaces are there. Yeah. Well, this is it, and it's the the eternal problem of knowing knowing where they are and how to how to reach out to people. But um, I think I think that sort of finishes our conversation off nicely, Pete. Um, in terms of the book and sort of a, a brief bit about it. But before we do look to to wrap up, obviously the book has has now launched and released. But have it's... you got any um, any upcoming? Other talks like um, we met out at the one in Pontefract. So you've got any upcoming events to further promote that you want to want to? Yeah, I'm out? sorting a lot out at the moment. Um, uh, I'm hoping to set something up uh, with the Red Shed in Wakefield. That's one of the clubs that I looked at 
Uh, yeah. uh, there's a I've just discovered there's an independent bookshop in Barnsley, which there never was when I was growing up. So I have to come <laughs> back there. I'm playing the off the shelf festival in Sheffield, but that's not till October. Mm. So I'm I'm looking to spend to set up quite a few events over the summer actually. But mm. uh, my website petebrown.net has a uh, events page, so I'm putting everything on there as soon as it's confirmed. Excellent. And and is that I didn't really have this as a question, but sort of are you spending more time in around Yorkshire and sort of up north, is that sort of going back to what people said about it only really appeals to northerners? Is that what you're sort of trying to capture almost, or is that true? Or is Well, it... I'm hoping it definitely does appeal to northerners, but I'm, I'm doing a lot of events <laughs> elsewhere as well. Mm. So I'm doing uh, I'm doing events in Wales, I'm doing events in London. Mm. Um, uh, the, the clubs in London are, are kind of reinventing themselves a bit more quickly because you've mm. got a lot, of po- a lot of younger people who, who've moved here from... Uh, more traditional working class northern communities yep. and uh, like, like I did 30 mm-hmm. years ago and they find these spaces and like oh I can recreate something that was at home so mm. yeah all across the country anyway anybody that'll have me basically yeah <laughs> and you'll be more than welcome up here as I'm sure you as you know from doing the Robin Hood which was a great absolutely and great if, if we're available when you when you do the one at the Red Shed it's somewhere I've not, not been before Wakefield I've, I've been out to but I've the one time I went to go to, well, one of the times I've been to Wakefield, it wasn't open. So yeah. So yeah. So if I'm around, or the one at the, the the gig in Sheffield that you're doing as well, if we if I'm about, I'll come and come Fantastic. and show my face again. But where where can people also buy the book, Pete? Where is it? Where is it available? So it's had, it's actually had quite a good um, initial submission. So quite a lot of copies have gone to Waterstones. So hopefully it's in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously it's on Amazon. Um, if you buy from Amazon, that helps you get up the rankings, which gets more exposure. But if you prefer, if you prefer to buy from an independent bookshop, uh, there should be a lot of copies in physical independent bookshops. But bookshop.org is kind of an alternative to Amazon, uh, where you effectively works the same way as Amazon, but you're buying it from the independent bookshop rather than Jeff Bezos. Mm. So uh, <laughs> lot, lots of alternatives. Yeah, I suppose it's a double-edged sword, isn't it, really? It gets you more exposure, yeah. but then it's not independent. So it's like, exactly mm, <laughs> what's more important almost. Um, but obviously, and you said that you um, you aren't as completely off fair with social media, Pete, but if people want to follow you, what what um, yeah. what avenues I'm, I'm, are you on? I'm at, I'm at Pete Brown Beer. Uh, my main one is Twitter. Uh, I'm on Instagram not as much um and yeah that's kind of it i'm not i'm not tiktoking or anything really but, <laughs> but yeah not doing t- silly dances or anything no, then, no but no. i keep i keep my, i keep twitter reasonably up to date mm. and i'm i'm still knocking about on my blog trying to trying to keep that updated yeah. um so yeah petebrown.net is the is the blog and all my stuff is there yeah excellent well, thank you very much for joining me this morning, thank Pete. You. I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out to do so. Um, but I'll, like I say, hopefully we'll, our paths will cross again at some point in the not-too-distant future when, you, when you're up this way again. And I, uh, I look forward to uh, getting my hands on, uh, on the book when, uh, when payday comes around at the end of this month. So Excellent. Be, I'll add it to the list of books that I've got of yours to, yes. uh, to work my way through. <laughs> Quite but, a pile. Uh, yes, but nonetheless, no, sort of, uh, not any disrespect, obviously. It's just my, my no, reading is, I, I read five pages and I fall asleep. It's a, I love reading, but I read and I fall asleep almost. And so it takes me ages to get through books, yes. which is, it's great because if I know I need to sleep, I can read. But then when I actually want to put my head in something <laughs> for an hour, it just does, does not work. But no, I know the feeling. Yeah. But no, Pete, once again, thank you very much for, for joining. And I, uh, I look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Welcome back. And I hope you enjoyed listening to Pete talk passionately, not only about his book, but our beer history as well. Pete's covered all manner of subjects with regards to our beer history and I'm sure you'll agree that listening to him speak about it, his passion really comes through 
and I, for one, cannot wait to read his new book. It's available now, and once I've finished Man Walks Into a Pub, I'll be hitting the order button on this one too. Hopefully, you'll join me and order a copy for yourselves, and if you want to get a copy of a book, it's available via Amazon, bookshop.org, or on the high street from some selected retailers. Thanks to Pete for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the book if you pick up a copy. Don't forget to like, follow and subscribe to this podcast and if there is any feedback at all that you'd like to send, please do send it to pointsofbrew at gmail.com. But until next time, bye for now.